I got a dream delivery service delivery from Matthias Slovina just a couple days ago. He's sending poems, dream poems, to pets right now. I signed up for Tommy to get some. If you listened to my other dream podcast, I was talking about how I had this very vivid and upsetting dream about this cat uh, getting out of the house and being in danger. And uh, this was right before the floods in Vermont last month, almost before last. And uh, then when I came back from that retreat, I was on when I had that dream, I I found out that Tommy had gotten out and was missing. He was missing for almost two months. We could uh, see him actually in the woods periodically and were trying to catch him and he wouldn't come. He was in some sort of survival mode state. It was very frustrating and upsetting. Um, so I signed up for these dreams to come. Unfortunately, I found out that just last week that uh, that the neighbors found his body and it was strange to get these dreams right after that. Strange and beautiful. Tragic and dramatic. So it fits it fits in all the places. Every pet you've loved and lost and every person seems to fit in this part of you as a a weird growth period. It seems linked to dreams, the way it sits inside you and your psyche, the way it peels back and shudders some part of your unconscious mind as well. Thinking of the idea that Robert Graves talks about, that the consistent message throughout poetry might be the question, what becomes of the beloved after death? I think the loss of a pet Tugs set that string quite strongly. We can barely stand to face that question. Yet Rilke knows, of course, that poetry comes in, the music that fills that empty space where something was. Poetry is intimately linked to grief and dirge, elegy. And this seems strangely linked to the dream world for obvious reasons. Nietzsche said, in the dream, we have the source of all metaphysics. Without the dream, men would never have been incited to an analysis of the world. Even the distinction between soul and body is wholly due to the primitive conception of the dream, as also the hypothesis of the embodied soul, whence the development of all superstition and also probably the belief in God. The dead still live, for they appear to the living in dreams. So reasoned mankind at one time, and through many thousands of years. Matthias's dream is, you are a horse. You are a bad horse, a naughty horse, but not an evil horse. You paw at the air with your hooves, Whenever a human nears you, you bite at the rumps of children who try to pet you, but you're not an evil horse. You unseat each rider who mounts you. You buck and you juke. You run up steep slopes to make the rider fall off. 
This is, one might say, awful of you. This is, perhaps, cruel of you, but it is not evil. There is no such thing as an evil horse. There is only what you choose to do and what you do not choose to have happen to you. The way you react to the humans, their uses and constraints of you, they are not evil. When you have knocked the rider off your back and slipped out of the tight saddle, you stop beside a cold creek and flop down in the sand. Soon you know the human will find you again and bring you back to their mechanical adorations. But for right now, you can do what you wish to do. You roll about ungainly and wild in the sand. You cake yourself with wet sand. So strange to get that after knowing that that's exactly kind of what happened, you know, trying to catch a cat and he wouldn't, he wouldn't come. Unfortunately, he was a bad horse, but not an evil horse. And he's certainly caked in sand at this point. Leanne Ruel, my friend and the poet, also ordered some dreams for her chicken. And she just told me her chicken passed away as well. What's happening? In dreams we live on. I'm excited for you to listen to my podcast today with Matthias. Um... If you have any comments or questions, you can always reach out to me at bianca at ruthstonehouse.org. And thanks. It seems like what is lost and gained has some overlap with with the lyric as well. You know, that uh, the lyric attempts a, a, a phenomenological document of interiority. So it's an impossible task. And, and a dream is a state. You know, the whole body is involved, uh, even if the body is kept still in the mind. Much like the lyric as well, poems that employ dream logic or poems that work within a sort of dreamscape can also induce that, that state. Matthias Lavina is a poet, writer, artist. His main ongoing singular endeavor is the Dream Delivery Service, a, quote, nomadic literary arts project of permeable dreaming, delivering daily dreams to subscribers for a month at a time. The Dream Delivery Service developed a dream audio tour once of the city of Denver with the Denver Museum of Contemporary Art and has worked with the Poetry Foundation, the University of Arizona Poetry Center, Austin Modern, Tucson Mocha, among others. To sign up for one means you get dreams sent to your door or delivered on a bike, and they are beautiful and strange and funny and uncannily pertinent. Matthias Lavina has authored seven books of mostly poetry, including America at Play by Trident Press in 2020, a collection of instructions for absurdist children's games. And most recently, I think, The Depression by Civil Coping Mechanisms, which is the best, uh, The I, I feel like the press was made for that, just for that book. 2020, a collaboration with the photographer John Pack. Uh, this book is photographs and fables that explore life with chronic depression. 
where in the tradition of Kafka, Slavina writes fables about the alienation of the modern subject under capitalism. Of the Depression, the Los Angeles Review writes, these fables are in Slavina, as in Kafka, eerily dreamlike, absurd yet evocative, illogical, but only to observe the deeper logic of the unconscious. Slavina might even approach Kafka's own fluency of this strange idiom. He certainly has a lot of job experience. No, he's no psychoanalyst. Psychoanalysts only interpret dreams. Slavina is more ambitious. He makes new dreams out of whole cloth. Of his poetry collection, Wine Dark Sea from Sidebrow Books, the Angel City Review writes, This work embodies the exposure of that which we take for granted the information lost in the imperfect nature of communication and the novelty and significance of seeing the world through another's eyes. Matthias is uh, apparently working on a surrealist cookbook with this photographer, John Pack, which I'm excited about the idea of. Uh, he does manuscript consults. He teaches online classes and in-person workshops and you can find out how to connect on those fronts at his website matthiaslavina.com and you can sign up to receive his dreams at home or if he's in your city at your doorstep at dreamdeliveryservice.com matthias welcome to the podcast thank you thanks for having me i wanted to begin by talking about your dream delivery service because it's such a massive part of your life and because I invited you on here today, this will be the first of several talks we'll be doing on the podcast, but today uh, as part of our dream um, series, talking about dreams and that endless conversation there, dreams and poetry. So I wanted to start by asking you about the dream delivery service, how this began for you and what what prompted its becoming i mean and uh like most things in my life it started off as something more like a joke than any sort of intentional uh work or something i just i i needed money and i i realized i had no skills other than writing weird shit for people so i um jokingly came up with a dream delivery service as a, a way to scam people into giving me money for stuff that was of no financial value. Hmm. Um, and then somehow it's become my life for the hmm. last uh, nine years, I guess, and seven years entirely devoted to it. And um, so, I mean, that's one side, but then on, on the other side, it was sort of, a further extension of what I'd been trying to do in books already of serial surrealist forms, mm-hmm. like a book of creation myths, a book of surrealist failed love poems, a book of instructions for children's games, a book of uh, absurdist business plans. Like these sort of like, whenever I find a little rhetorical form that fits on a single page, I just want to write about two or 300 of them and see where it goes. I love that obsessiveness, the taking it, seeing how far you can take it, but having a sort of fixed form that it can live in, a frame. 
yeah, me too. I love, I mean, it's what, it's one of the things that keeps me so excited about writing dreams for people because I, rather than trying to write an enactment of a dream or any sort of phenomenological experience of a dream, I write in what I think of as the form of how we tell each other dreams, which is Mm. usually with a kind of deadpan, flattened syntax, um, very simplistic narrative style. So that, that balance between, you know, this absolute chaos of, you know, the, the imagination with a kind of capital I Blake sense of like that dreams tap into. And then this very limited formal structure of second person, usually starting off, you are in blank space and you are doing this thing. And then things get weird. I was struck by that actually, because the dreams that you send are, they feel so incredibly intimate because of I think a large part because of that you address. And when we are telling dreams, say, oh, and then I was doing this and then I was doing that. But these feel as if they are our dreams. So it's like the unconscious itself is speaking to us in these letters. Um, You were quoted in an article in Vice as saying the writing of these dreams are formal experiences. I'm sorry, formal experiments, not in the sense of recreating dreams themselves, which are expansive and uniquely freaky deaky, but in how we relate dreams to each other. So, right. So I guess I have always been more, I've always been curious about if, if these are your real, if these are, if you, how the process is for you, it doesn't seem like you stick to your dreams. It seems like you're more interested in the formula of how dreams um, come to us their structure yeah or i guess not, yeah go on yeah, well, I, well I, sorry i i just thought it was like because right. it's a it's a it does make you think like there's the dream that we have and then there's how we talk about the dream and so like how we make how we make manifest a narrative out of that way that dreams occur to us is in itself like it's the removal of of the actual event of the dream into the telling of the dream something changes but there's something significant in the in what we remember and how we tell it um and then there's this third element of you writing something on a piece of paper and making it an actual object so those are just thoughts but but go on what you were saying yeah those are great thoughts because it it seems like what is lost and gained has some overlap with with the lyric as well you know that uh the lyric attempts a a a phenomenological document of interiority Mm -hmm. so it's an impossible task and and a dream is a state you know the whole body is involved uh even if the body is kept still by the mind um so no text is ever going to fully convey or represent that so it's uh even the most sort of immersive you know breton bullshit uh that tries to like sort of uh tap into getting the the unfettered i'm sorry i'm, I'm letting my disdain for breton come out <laughs> uh, Let it rage yeah, yeah. <laughs> you like that 
that that that attempt to like perform the unfettered mind or something like that on the on the page, you know, it doesn't doesn't make a state, you know. But um, much like the lyric as well, poems that employ dream logic or poems that work within a sort of dreamscape uh, can also induce that that state. You know, and induce think, the dream state for the reader. Yeah, and that's one of the wonderful things about a physical book of poems to me too is like the the ways that it intrudes upon uh completion you know that the so often for me reading a book of poems is about reading two or three poems and then getting lost in whatever those poems have enacted in me mm. you know and sort of rather than doing like i'm doing right now with this month of the sealy challenge of plowing through a book start to finish Every yeah, day. beginning to end. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 ideal lyric poem, in my opinion, and the ideal dream poem kind of share that impulse toward uh making the reader pull out of the reading experience and into an internal experience. Mm-hmm. Sort of so yeah, the that recounting and that simplistic rhetorical style of recounting dreams is appealing to me because it's easy first off and <laughs> just uh, from a writer's point of view yeah uh, i can do this sort of cold read improv bullshit of just yeah. be like okay i'm in a, a shell station and there's a tortoise so what's happening you know yeah and i can uh but then the more that i attempt to have a fragile or a loose control of the decisions made inside that form the more possibility happens so mm-hmm. much like in a dream in which something like a remote control might be the most like beautiful thing that you've ever seen in your life inside the dream or it might be the saddest thing you know that that tortoise in a shell station might end up being something that conjures a, a genuine emotional experience or a genuine kind of autobiographical emotional experience yes i rambled there no you didn't at all i i i, I slip into reverie from it mainly because i'm thinking about tortoise in a shell station now um that was my best joke for the day <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's something that the more I go on in my life as a writer and as a person and, and think too about, um, the relational and the dyad and the, the, what, what really happens between people, um, getting, chasing that state where we can dream together. Um, it's strange because there's something that feels so fucking personal about the dream. Like it's your unconscious. And yet, you know, for example, reading these dreams, I know they're not strictly the same thing as your dreams, but it doesn't really matter here. I, I, I distinctly feel that intimacy. and But it's the same as a poem because it's that same intimate, work with the unconscious um that somehow 
brings the brings us into dreaming together um i wonder if that simplicity you were talking about just now in that form um there's something there that's not that's not nothing right that's not just a, for you to have a clever way to write some stuff uh it's actually there's something in that simplicity or deceptive simplicity which honestly is most people are trying to find it right they're trying to find the like the simplicity of like accessing their own voice so that they can be prolific um but there's something in that that does allow for the reader to come in, to step in. Maybe because we recognize that we understand it, we can sit with it. Yeah, it's a real it's a real technical skill for how to sort of handle archetypes, how to handle uh, the familiar in a way that allows a stranger's, I don't know, magical holding of the familiar or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like I think... You know, that Lucille Clifton poem that we bounce back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe is it okay if I read it? Yeah, let's read it. Um, sorry, I thought I had it up. Okay. This is a, It Was a Dream by Lucille Clifton, in which my greater self rose up before me accusing me of my life with her extra finger whirling in a gyre of rage at what my days had come to. What, I pleaded with her, could I do? Or what could I have done? And she twisted her wild hair and sparked her wild eyes and screamed as long as I could hear her, this, this, this. I love, I love like there's a whole book of dream poems. If you go through Clifton's collected, you know there's there's like a, almost like a full text of dream poems in there, and almost all of them say dream about, you know, or so and so dream. Like she makes it very clear right in the title, like or in the dream zone. I don't have to do any work to try to like yeah. get you in there, and that's a kind of reader engagement that instantly calls up a sort of playing field that I love. Yeah. And then the way that she handles, you know, what what I'm what I'm saying is simplicity, but I don't, I don't know. That's not the right word, but you know, that directness, uh, clarity, mm-hmm. something in those in the constellation of other things, I think is just so masterful. You know, in which my greater self rose up before me, accusing me of my life. You With know, her how, extra finger, I love that that yeah. detail. That her extra finger. How, how the mundane and the impossible uh, are laid out so clearly and uh, without the kind of aesthetic flourish that makes the image something unto itself. You know, it's like, I think to enter the dream state with the poet, I want to... Uh, have that feeling of the blank paper. I want to have that feeling of both of us kind of sharing a movement rather than me attending to the language, the words, the syntax, the the, the tools of, of the craft. 
you know, and I think she makes the the mechanics disappear so easily that the complexity of the actual image there, my greater self rose up before me, accusing me of my life with her extra finger whirling. Mm. You know, and like, there's no way to picture that, you know, instead of, it's only picturable semantically, but then what it means is steps beyond the semantics. It feels so, I feel like I'm inside it, this poem. The poem, even how the poem looks on the page, feels like what it's saying, as if you're stepping into it. Mm -hmm. It was a dream. You're, you're right that she says, it was a dream is, you know, the title. Okay, so I want you to know this, this, it was a dream. Yet it couldn't feel more like authentic to the reality of being a person like with a mind and a and, and multiple selves and like the the contradiction of it that that there's this raging stranger self that's in you that's mad at you that you have to and of course you know maybe this you know maybe this is this is a a vestige of her mother you know maybe this is the superego i you know like you could there's so many different options but it doesn't say it, it, it leaves it so organically open for us to experience it too. And like, I feel it in my skin. Like I feel it tingling. I'm like, I feel my heart beating faster. Um, Cause if, so, when you're recounting a dream, you get to speak mythic about the self. Yes. You know, without coming yeah. off sounding like some, you know, has been deep image. <laughs> if want to be, yeah. you know, the, you can speak mythic about the self in ways that actually warrant the mythic. Yes. Uh, and I think she does this. So finally, just my greater self, you know, and like how yeah. that conjures for you, those archetypes of, of the mother of, of a double of, you know, and well, the fact that she says it's her greater self, you know, she puts right away, she puts a lot of clout in the speaker's voice. So, it's some part of herself that knows she's not, not, there's something, there's some way to do something differently, um, to change even, to change how things have been happening. But it's like, it's already happening in her because this part of it in her is saying it's our, you know, this is what, how to do it. And it's like inside her. Um, and I interpret that way differently too, of like this sense of like this, this doesn't feel like potential by the end for me. This feels like a, like a trap of of the of the self and the trap of the dream. Uh, so that this that repeated this at the end to me is void of hope. Void of hope, and yeah, right. I mean, and also there's something terrifying about the this because it's capitalized three times in a row where the rest of the poem is lowercase. And it's within a scream um, and a twisting of hair, wild hair. Um, the little gyre that you can't help but reference uh, Yates with. Yates, yeah. 
Right. It's such a simple poem. You know, it's the yeah, kind of poem so that like simple. on first read you think like, oh, it's all right there on the page. It's so and I think myth is the right word, the myth of the soul. It there there's that the the myth that lives within our dreams that feels it feels universal, it feels massive, it feels like ancient, it feels eternal, it feels like it feels like frightening but like awesome you know it's um there's something shared in it there's there's some sort of shared myth in dreams that we that, that as if as and who are these people and let's some sense of getting to hang with the self too that like happens with art <laughs> right you know, that like you know you get to revise yourself and revisit like iterations of yourself with art you know, in that same way that, like, you get this alternate universe self you that, that gets to play out the impossible or the impossibly anxious, as in the case yeah. of most of my dreams. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you get to, you know, one, one kind of evolutionary argument for dreams is that it's just a, a practice space for, for catastrophe. You know, so yeah. we get to uh we get more versions of playing out reactions to the world than we do in real life and so potentially that gives us a greater tool set for for actually reacting in real life um i don't know about that it's just something i read interesting like all, like all I love how... attempts at discussing dreams it's interesting and also bullshit scientific science studies have shown that actually dreaming is a practical necessity for survival that's all yeah um, i mean that's yeah so is the imagination so is, yeah and yeah, like, so metaphor yeah exactly yeah i keep trying to get to a place where i can conflate and albeit i don't pretend to understand what he means by it, but like Blake's idea of the imagination with the the world available to us in the dream. You know, and like how that nextness of dream logic and that assumptive acceptance of uh, whatever sort of, uh, you know, branching, rhizomatic, like sort of expansion happens inside the dream mm -hmm. uh, feels to me overlapping with the idea of like the infinitude of self that the imagination is for mm -hmm. Blake, you know, and like, and that way that the imagination and the soul seem, if not the same for him, at least like interwoven, uh, one dependent on the other yeah. as uh, I just was sorry Keats in here but um, uh, Keats talking about the world being here for soul that instead of the veil of tears being the veil of soul making that that in some ways that the soul is of course the soul is made and expanded by its sense of identity made through feelings um and heart and imagination uh then intellect then world well it makes me think like i used to think dreams 
or just something the brain had to do. And now that I've been in psychoanalysis and now that I've read so much poetry and now that I've thought about imagination and the unconscious, it's not just that. It's not just something that the brain needs to do to like, what does that even mean? Like needs to do to just function like properly, like work stuff out, like it's meaningless, you know, like, like the images in it are meaningless. Like they don't, like they're not real. But there's also <laughs> like what you're saying about, you know, like we, we deal with unreality, you know, we, we, we deal with unreality in the waking life constantly too, you know, like we are, we are right. told to care about money <laughs> as if that fucking exists. Yeah. You know, we're right. told to care about as all if, these things right. that don't exist. Yeah. You know, so in yeah. Crunching numbers, like, like as if statistics mm-hmm. are more real than a dream, which is when you think about it, yeah. it's so insane. And then it's actually the yeah. way, the way that Not we physically that, process huh? the world, that the brain makes the world conscious to us is not different in the waking life than mm-hmm. the dreaming life. I mean, yes, it is different, but yeah, the, 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 the functions of the brain are, are, are still those same functions, you know, so that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that old kind of silly philosophy 101 Cartesian mind blowing moment is like still pretty mind blowing to me. I'm just like, you know, we, we are still swimming in the same data, uh, whether awake or, or dreaming. And I don't think it's mm-hmm. interesting to care <laughs> about when, one is awake or when one is asleep, you know, in that sort of way that, that Descartes needed to do uh, for his argument, but like that sense of like that there, there is a a boundaryless state of it, you know, that when, when we are participating in the things that we call dreams and participating in the things that we call reality, much of what, the body and the, the or much of what the brain is doing is is the same it's the same interesting it's the same but it feels like di- of course different different in that it's like there's this part of you of course that knows something you don't know and it's the way that it knows it isn't the same as the way the conscious mind knows things. So there's like this logic. I don't know if that's the right word, but there's a logic to the unconscious that's not the same logic as our logic, but it's still, but it, but it's information. Why would we need this information? I, to further, to further the soul to, I would say like, that's where the Keatsian like soul making happens. Like, to further consciousness, to like grow, like move into like understanding. And maybe they understood this thousands of years ago. Maybe it's not linear, but like still nonetheless, there's some sort of element of, of um, meaning and images and imagination that is on one side in the, in the, in the dream realm and the unconscious and in the, in the, in that place 
and the conscious mind can benefit from interacting with it. And by benefit, I mean, not financially, but <laughs> spiritually, maybe. Yeah, that's um, also, I mean, Adam Phillips has some line in one of his books where he's like, dreams are very unprofessional. <laughs> and like this, and, and, like, and it's, it's said uh, with joy. And it's like that uselessness. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, that we try to replicate in, I don't know if we all try. I try to replicate in making art, you know, in sort of sense of like not having a use value, not having intentionality, not having uh, telos, all these like meow, meow, meow things, or like not having the closed structure of uh, ideological or personal goal in the art making, you know, so it's really at play yeah. in the dream state. We're resistant to this in our culture. Personally of course. too. I'm res- I mean, I've, I don't want to fill up and, notebooks with yeah. shit and like not have an ending and not like get to something cool. <laughs> yeah. I want yeah, to write cool and shit. share it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of, people I've met who are like that, who frighten me, you know, it's, I, I don't, cause I see some possibility of that, you know, I, I don't want to, I want it to be shared, right. I want to, I want to talk with somebody, um, but you can get lost in, in your mind a lot. And it's very isolating. Um, I don't, wow. That's like a, that's a, that's a different road we're going down. I want to read, your dreams that you sent, dream poems you sent. Um, should I should I read one? All right, I'm gonna read this one. You should. It's part of that project for the Denver Museum of Contemporary Art. A dream. You're walking down the middle of the street, holding hands with that tornado. The tornado is very sweet. It's very good at heart. But everywhere the tornado goes, they leave devastation and destruction in their wake. Downed trees, smashed cars, buildings ripped asunder, snapped power lines, snapped sparking on the pavement. The tornado's damages don't affect you right now, but you know that soon they will. You know that one cannot stay this close to a tornado and continue to avoid the tornado's destruction. You love the tornado deeply. You understand the tornado in a way no one else ever could. You also know this can't last. And so you are taking the tornado to the wildlife reserve so that they can be free to do their thing out there in the open landscape. Still, as the two of you walk down the street toward the fenced in fields, you let the tornado keep a hold of your hand. Let the tornado grip you tightly, their fierce and uncontrollable winds. And you know you must let go soon, very soon, with just one more minute. Just one more second, another second, another, just one more. I feel this one is perfect with the Lucille Clifton poem. I feel there's like a self in this tornado that's, there's a relationality between the the you and the tornado in this that's not wanting to let it go 
holding his hand. It's beautiful. Yes. And there's a little Joseph Chiravolo reference in the, the ending. That moth poem of his. There's like another, yeah. another, another. Um, I don't know that one. Oh. Yeah, okay. It's the first one in the selected poems from back in the 90s. Uh, that's what that's what I care about in that point. <laughs> I'm like, there's, there's a Joseph Shravla <laughs> reference. Illusion, illusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's sort of hard because like, what I love about that poem of Clifton's is the asymptotic relationship toward like uh, meaning. You know, so it's like, like to me, that's like the successful use of metaphor and image is that 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 sense of always approaching meaning making without like settling at made meaning. You know, and I like that mm-hmm. that idea of the greater self. Uh, what happens with the the screaming of this this mm-hmm. this? You know, the 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 hair movement is it a rending of hair? Is it you know like a sort of Medusa references it, you know, all these sort of ways that like mm-hmm. that meaning is conjured without being settled. So it's like I don't know that tornado dream. When I when I wrote it, I was like, oh, I think that's good because I'm feeling shit. And then I was like, never think yeah. about it again. <laughs> like, like yeah, just, yeah. The fact that it made made feelings yeah, well, happen. Yeah, it's funny because you you can do that. You can be like, I, I feel I'm feeling a shit, but you don't have to sit down figuring it all out. Like you don't have to say what it is and and analyze it. So you don't have to analyze your own poems and and figure them out. You just send them off. But you but the feeling enough. But you feel something. Like it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling because you've gotten something out. Like that that you've articulated something. It's like even just articulating it without analyzing it is enough it's and the dream uh, form allows that too so much like the the deal you make with the reader yeah. already is like well at any moment i can just be like oh that's just a fucking dream yeah um right right or frost being like yeah two roads did diverge yeah. in a way that's all it was <laughs> yeah there's just some some stuff i saw <laughs> yeah but but it's it's not of course it's not that there's um, this is important because you know people want meaning to be told to them instead of letting it there's something else that happens in poetry particularly but it happens all over the place um like when people say what does that tattoo mean you're like it means a lot but I'm not going to fucking get into it with you because it would take a long time and you it would dumb it down, you know, it would, it would wreck it. Um, just inter- I just want you to interact with my tattoo, you know, like, yeah. what's, what's your what's Myers-Briggs? Doing for you? um, what, what boxes, yeah. <laughs> what boxes can I willingly step into in order to, to better limit and understand myself? Yeah, it really limits. It, it does limit though. To say it's one thing, to say you know, understand. But we need that too. I mean, like, you know, that's form too. You know, that's that's like the joy of form is like right. we know when the fucking poem is over. <laughs> you know, we, we know. 
Right. Mm -hmm. It has to have the reader an end. knows the game, the rules of the game that are going to be adhered to or broken. You know, and so when I look at my Myers Briggs thing, I can say like, oh, I do see myself in some of this these bullet points of of vagary. Uh, yeah, in the sense of like, when meaning is given to us, the satisfaction of like, of of limiting the world to something understandable is like such a, such a fucking joy, you know? Like, notice it is it is answer C. That is true. So it's the positive yeah. side of limiting something because when we limit it, we can Which see Which I think it also it. is yeah. maybe, if not the same, overlaps with you saying like, I want to share these poems. I want to have discourse. I want to, I want to connect to other humans through this stuff. Yeah. Which means you have to, you have to give it meaning and <laughs> you have to finish your book and make it good and write about what it's about and talk about it in podcasts and, you know, have, have, yeah. But, but again, it's that like, there's always so much of the dream that is never going to be known and is absurd. And so well, that's never and, even related. Um, you know, like my, I've very rarely been able to lose a dream, but when I have the first thing I want to do is like, like look away from the action, you know, like look, look at grass look at water, you know, look at like, what is, what is my brain going to do with the totally commonplace when it's allowed to do whatever it wants? Mm. That's interesting. Cause when you say that, it's like, I had this um, feeling of deja vu, like have doing the same thing, but I feel like when I do it, it's because I want to focus on as much as I can on something like, and it gets brighter and more clearer and like the grass, like I'm actually looking <laughs> at grass. I can see it. It's, like it's here. Look at very small things with your eyes. Yeah. Bernadette Mare. Yeah. Look at very small things with your eyes. Indeed. I'm God, I, you know, reading so much Rilke and then reading so much Bachelard and thinking about the phenomenological and thinking about the world, thinking about the romantics, thinking about nature, I realize I don't look enough at small things. Sometimes I'm always the big conceptual idea, you know, and every time I look at the world and observe small things like... Uh, a little slug um, on the ground. I have to run back inside and stop looking and write something. And I don't even have to look that long. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I need, I need ah, a slug. Now I write five slug poems as if I'm out there every day. It's true, though. Yeah, and I something. What's but that? Even, even within a poem small things but even yeah, small and I think things so that, yeah. for me that's also part of the appeal of like trying to write you know thousands and thousands of these dream poem things is sort of like okay well what happens if there's you know dice what will the dice do what can what can dice do that dice can't do mm. you know and then it's like 
the mind sort of goes through like its little roulette wheel of like it could make fried chicken, no, too silly. It could, you know, they could roll up and they could be two burning houses instead of numbers. Like, okay, like what's, what does that mean? You know, and like that sort of yeah. like that play with like trying to stretch uh, an easily accessible archetypal image that anybody has access to, any reader has access to, and then stretch it into something that is, you know, coming back to uniquely something only I could write, but then trying to couch it in a way that is still written for the reader's experience, you know, and still has that sort of fortune teller, cold read scam element of like willfully trying to include uh, the reader's sense of profundity making or, or intimacy making, you know, which, which is also mm -hmm. part of just how you use the image in writing a poem too. Like I'm, I'm being dismissive, but it's like, right. I don't think there's any difference between a, a gimmick and prosody. Uh, yeah, like that, that joy of just being like, okay, okay. like what if, if I was going to write like a hundred poems about dice, like how could I, how could I, you know, like, like Pond writing about soap, you know, and just looking so closely at soap, that right. something ecstatic happens in soap. <laughs> yeah. It changes the attention we pay things. Yeah. Your process is extremely intense and prolific from what I've seen. You you write a lot every day, don't you? Not uh, Not as much as I had been, but when I'm doing the dream delivery... I'll typically write um, somewhere between 20 and 40 of them a day. Damn. And then, I, and then I, you know, and like a couple of them would be for pets and a couple are for children. So they have to be like directed there. And maybe I'll have somebody who is not really a reader. So I know I have to write like sort of more uh, poetically gentle works for that person then that might overlap with the child i don't know you know uh so there's like some sort of avenue or cul-de-sacs in there but like a lot of it is just sort of like collecting or trying to like collect as much stuff every day and then trying to exhaust myself of all the collected stuff every day and then getting up the next day and doing it again so it's like there's no editing <laughs> sometimes yeah. you know glaring typos uh, you know much less like editing for good writing quote unquote like uh and it's 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 very much unlike poetry to me because poetry by the time a poem sees a reader i've put as much pressure as i can on it to like prove to myself that i believe in this thing and that I want to say this stuff out loud to strangers. Mm -hmm. um, whereas these, I forget about, you know, 99% of them almost immediately after writing them. Interesting. And, I, and never reread them again, too. So, yeah. But this one, this one is the one I've, I think I've reread the most because uh, it was in poetry. Uh, and I think it's pretty good. I don't know. So, I'm going to read it. A dream. Someone has stolen the thing you love most. You are surprised because what the thief stole, you did not think this was what you loved most. 
If someone had asked you what you loved most, you would not have said that it was this thing. But now that the thief has stolen it, you understand from its absence it is the thing you love most. You wander around town looking in dumpsters, checking pawn shops, asking strangers, hoping to find the thing you love. You get some good intel from a few cool snails and head to the bluffs overlooking the cacophonous river. The thief is there, standing at the edge of the bluffs, their back to you. You walk up and stand beside them, listening to the white water thunder over the rocks, watching clouds slip and twist into and out of existence. You took from me the thing I love most, you say to the thief. No, the thief says, I didn't. That's not how love works. The thief hands it back to you, the thing you love most. But when you have that thing back, you do not once again feel the love. Even with the thing you love most in your hands, you feel the absence. How do I get it back, you say? How do I get back the love? The thief hands you an armful of tangled yarn. Here, the thief says, it's up to you. You need to make it out of this. You look more closely at the yarn and see that it is not made of wool or acrylic, but that contained in the interlocking fibers of the yarn is everything you have ever felt and known and believed, and wrapped up with all of this is everything you might one day feel and know and believe. You hold the armful of yarn close to you. It is heavy, heavier than you would have thought. Do I have to do it now, you say? Thief says, no, not now, but soon. You say, how will I know when I've finished? The thief says, you won't. I love that so much. It's maybe my most like moral at the end of the fable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like, yeah, it's just perfect. It's perfect. It's so, it makes me think of, well, existence, <laughs> working with, with your consciousness and, and trying to figure it out. But it it's, makes me think of poems too, you know, it's. Um, the thing I like is the, the, the rolling dactyls at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just some good rolling dactyls. I, I love anytime yeah. I can get into like a a long uh, anapestic or dactylic run. It feels really good. It it's, feels it's, good to hear it. It feels good to read it. It's like, good. Yeah. yeah. That's the shit that like keeps me coming back to poetry is like just pure scansion. <laughs> it's like, so, yeah, you can really hear it. Yeah. For someone who like doesn't write anything that looks like traditional rhyme and meter, like I obsess over scansion so much. Yeah. I mean, poetry, the lyric, the lyre, the musical element to it is so important and uh, it's just so good. It does it I don't know what 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 is it? Is it is it lulling the mind into uh accepting what it hears or or there's some element to rhythm that contains yeah i mean if we were making an argument that could be made entirely in the semantic structure of the sentence then we wouldn't be calling upon poetic language so i think about that long letter that jonathan swift wrote to like uh somebody who asked him for writing advice and it's like all this stuff about how to be a poet as far as like professionally and sort of like what to do and how to read and all that kind of stuff. But then like, and forgive me, it's been a long time since I've read it, but like there's a part of it where 
he actually gives advice about writing and it's basically like, yeah, get, get the syllables in the right order. <laughs> you know, sort of like, which feels yeah. like the best yeah. you can say about like, you know, you know, you know, you can't really, I don't know, maybe you can. It seems to me difficult to give advice about poetic thinking or content of poems. You know, you can guide mm-hmm. writers certainly, but like, it seems to me that like the the writerly advice is a lot of like you know get the syllables in the right place you know and like that teaches me how to make yeah. something feel truer more than the kind of existential self analysis part like making the music of the poem is where I find the truth of the poem. It's a little bit like the poems find you that way too, that you get this line in your head that's like incorrect grammatically or awkwardly put, but there's something in the rhythm of the words and the sounds that is so contained in itself that you know, you know, and then the poem comes forth from that. Yeah, like it it makes fucking sense to believe in the muses, <laughs> you know, like, like that there is, yeah, there is some kind of portal to a thing that we do not as, as merely sentient beings, you know, these like accum- brief accumulations of fucking minerals and fats and carbon, you know, that, that we, we get occasionally a portal into something else, whatever that else is. Like, of course that's yeah. fucking divine. Yeah. <laughs> like who who wouldn't think Of course yeah. it's divine. Yeah. Why don't you read that Mikado poem for us and <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I wanna hear that. I wanna hear you read that. Antonio Mikado. Last night I was as I was sleeping, and this is a translation uh, Robert Bly did. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that a spring was breaking out in my heart. I said, along which secret aqueduct, O water, are you coming to me? Water of a new life that I have never drunk? Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart. And the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt marvelous error. The fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. It was fiery because I felt warmth as from a hearth. And sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. Last night, as I slept, I dreamt marvelous error that it was God I had here inside my heart. And that's a perfect poem. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, perfect. Totally a like great the, frame. The, the ridiculous audacity of interpreting the sun, yeah. <laughs> it was fiery. Because I felt yeah. warmth as from my heart. You know, like what what a what an insane 
stanza. A fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. It was fiery because I felt warmth as from a hearth. And sun, because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. And that's sort of like absolute inversion of anything we might think of as imagistic logic there. It's so right easy and so like easy in, in, a, in a good way. Like it comes across so easily, but it's so deeply weird and such a like, yeah, yeah. I talk I about mean, symbols. I mean, we start with this aqueduct, the spring inside the self. Um, so much life giving, so much of the imagery of our potentiality seems to be wrapped up with water. Uh, sorry, all that bachelard and the water and dreams book I've been deep into, but I thought of that the honeycomb, white honeycomb sweet honey from old failures and then of course the sun does it make um, me wish that we had a podcast where we just read a poem and then for an hour it'd be like that's so good <laughs> so fucking good so fucking good and perfect yeah. poems too like just perfect poems you know like ones that just like have that mm. <laughs> just just 50 minutes of being like oh damn that line yeah that line mm. too mm. Oh, yeah. And look at what he did there. Oh, that's good, too. Mm. <laughs> Fuck. Can't even throw in the book down. Can't. Oh. And it was God I had here inside my heart. I mean, I don't I mean, have the, get away the with moral authority um, with myself to write anything like this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe in my own existence enough yet to, to write something like this. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha